Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Roy Orbison Jr.'s Rock and Roll Podcast. Why rock and roll? Because it's the greatest thing ever. And why a circus? Because we're mad. And uh, hey, how are you doing? I'm glad to be with you again. Last year was all about Elvis. I was hanging around with James Burton and going down to Graceland nearly every week. And uh, I got into Elvis music again and watched a lot of that. But that's not what today's podcast is about, because this is 2018. And 2018 is turning out to be a Beatles year for me. And just like I go back and reread a great book like The Hobbit or The Bible every eight years or so, there's some bands and some artists that I just come back to again and again. And the Beatles are right there at the top of the list. John... Paul, George, Ringo, all friends of mine, all friends of my dad's, and all family friends. So there's a lot to say. Some of it is uh, personal, and uh, some things are best left unsaid, and other things people have said too many times. So I'll try to give you some info, new info on the Beatles. So earlier this year, a great friend of ours, Jeff Slate, who wrote the book The Authorized Roy Orbison with Alex and Wesley and I, he asked us if we wanted to play a Beatles fest, something he's done quite a few times. And uh, Jeff always has a good band, and he's a great singer and performer himself, so we jumped on the opportunity and said yes. Right at the end, Wesley had to go do something else, so it was Alex and I, a couple of weeks ago, flying up for the 44th annual Beatles Fans Celebration. It was on March 9th, 10th, and 11th, 2018. We were in Jersey, but I think they call it the, the New York branch, but we were at the, the Hyatt Regency in the Jersey Center, right there on the Hudson, overlooking uh, both the Freedom Tower and the Statue of Liberty. And it was a first-class operation, and I just want to thank the organizer and the, the president of this club, is Mark Lipidos, and he and his family rolled out the red carpet, and I had so much fun, I would do that any time. There were many things that made it fun. The fans were up all night long in the lobby playing music themselves. They didn't even need any musicians. But there were a couple of different stages, and uh, I played at everything I could jump up with. We played with, uh, we played a Wilburys-inspired set with Jeff Slate's band, and that stuff is on YouTube if you want to check it out. Uh, I sang You Got It and Pretty Woman at the end. And I didn't think we even had time. We were running out of time. And Jeff said, oh, want to sing? So I jumped up and, and did it. The fans came alive on Pretty Woman like you wouldn't believe. So a big thank you to Jeff for inviting us. We had fun. We signed books. Um, and met a lot of the fans. They're the ones that made it so fun. These Beatles fans were were really fun. They all had on their Beatles gear and their favorite stuff, and they, they all had specialties within what they liked about the Beatles. And they stayed up till 4 in the morning, every morning in the lobby, driving the hotel crazy. But I loved it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, and, and I've come to really like these kind of things, like Elvis Week and, and things like a Beatles Fest. They're, those are my kind of people. We talked about everything from uh, the Beatles to the Traveling Wilburys and oldies in general. There was Billy J. Kramer, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. He was down there. 
Randy Bachman was down there, and uh, a great uh, cover band of the Beatles called the called Liverpool. This band Liverpool was so good. Alex and I were waiting uh, to go out and join them for a little bit, and I got to hear them for the first time. And we kind of came up with a funny joke because someone came back and said, "Yeah, these guys have been together since 1976." And Alex and I, after they left, we, we, I said, "They've been together longer than the real Beatles." These guys have been together like 40 years, and uh, and it just highlights how much the Beatles did. The Beatles had a, had a run, I think of them mostly from about 62, 63, to about 70, even 71. And, and that's, that's less than 10 years. And it's always amazing that the guys who really do things, they shake it up in a three-year period. Someone like Buddy Holly, everything he did, he did by the time he was 21. And the Beatles, they... Um, they all branched out. Uh, that's the part that gets really interesting for me. Even though I'm a Beatles, I call myself a Red Beatles fan because I, the Beatles, 1962 to 1966, has a red cover, and the blue cover, and those are my two favorite kind of best of Beatles, and I always come back to those, and I find myself just burning through the red one. I can listen to the red one forever. Um, it's got the early songs like Love Me Do, Please Please Me, Can't Buy Me Love, Hard Day's Night, Eight Days a Week, Yesterday, Help, Drive My Car, Yellow Submarine. I just looked at the back of this thing, and uh, those are the ones that I really like. So for me, the early Beatles is still a real connection to rock and roll and makes them rock and roll pioneers, whereas the blue, the blue box is more rock. So the Beatles were the ones who brought us from rock and roll into rock music. And I just like the old, it's just my personal preference. I like the old techniques and the old one takes and just a couple of tracks. Their later stuff, the experimental stuff, was a studio masterpiece. You know, they, they, they came up with, um, they almost invented writing albums in the studio only for the purposes of being albums, and those albums are more like movies or cinema. And um, the early rock and roll stuff is more like a picture, snapshot of a specific day and time and sound. So there's a, so much to get to, I'm just going to jump around, though. Ringo Starr, congratulations to the Duke of Cambridge, Sir Richard Starkey. Sir Ringo. Long awaited, long overdue, but perfect timing. Um, I've seen pictures and it's just beautiful. Of course, Paul was already knighted as Sir Paul, and George and John still have that yet to come. They do that posthumously for people. Uh, I can't think of anyone offhand, but they, they knight people posthumously, so I'm looking forward to John and George being knighted. I'll almost shed a tear when George is knighted. And there's so many things to talk about, George and the Wilburys. My, my dad first met the Beatles in 1963. Roy Orbison just came off of a tour with Patsy Cline as his opening act in January and February. Her plane crashed March 5th, 1963. And within two weeks, I believe, Roy was on the plane going to England for his first national English tour. He didn't know who was going to be playing. It was a local supporting act. Roy was the headliner and the reason for the tour. And this tour ended up being historic for a lot of reasons. One, Roy 
famously forgot his sunglasses and only had the dark shades. And when he showed up, he was somewhere. It might have been um, Trafalgar Square or just wherever they were about to play. They probably took him to the event. And he saw in big letters, The Beatles and Roy Orbison. And Roy also famously or infamously said, What's a Beatle? And John Lennon, who was standing right behind him, gently tapped him on the shoulder. And as Roy looked over his shoulder, John said, I'm one. And that began a great friendship between John and Roy. John would do the speaking for the band in the early days. The stories that Roy told me were that a little later on, uh, they were going to do the show, and John and the Beatles came in, and John begged Roy if the Beatles could close the show. They said, Roy, you're making all the money, and we're just starting out, and we're high energy, and we'd, would, um, we just feel it would make a better show if we close the show. And Roy kind of let them wait. He said, now think about it. And he, he mulled it over a little and let them sit there nervously. And then he said, he thought to himself, um, he was jet lagged. He flew in within 24 hours. He was doing the first show. So by playing first, he got to go to bed a couple of hours earlier. And with the time delay, it meant he got to go to bed at 2 in the morning rather than 4 in the morning. So he was happy to let them close the show. And in fact, Roy was never... He never had that kind of ego. You hear about Jimi Hendrix and and the Who, you know, almost getting into fist fights over who was going to play the show. You hear about Jerry Lee Lewis with nearly everyone. It was a big deal that Jerry closed the show. So in the early days of Sun Records, Jerry and Johnny were nearly in a fight backstage, and Roy, already in 56, said, Don't worry, guys, I'll open the show. So Roy really didn't care about that kind of thing for some reason. He didn't have that kind of ego. So at the beginning, Roy was friends with John, and they thought alike. And John was the big Orbison fan. Paul was more of a Buddy Holly, Little Richard fan, and John liked Roy Orbison and Chuck Berry. So John, in his own words, he said that he wrote the song Please Please Me in an attempt at writing an Orbison song. And he was listening to Only the Lonely and I'm Hurting. It's hard to hear, but it's got these accents in there. The parts where he says, they go, Come on, pop, pop. Come on, pop, pop. Come on, pop, pop. Those are kind of like the part in I'm Hurting, the accents that Roy did. You walked away, bump, 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 bump. The pain began, bump, 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 bump. I knew I'd never, bump, 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 love again. And so it was that kind of songwriting. They took the song Please Please Me into George Martin, and it was so Orbison-y that George said, Look, boys, there's only one Roy Orbison, and you're not him. And so he tinkered with it, switched things around. They would speed it up. They did the thing, same thing later on with Help. Help was a very slow Orbison-type ballad that they, they sped up because it, was, it sounded too Orbison-y at a slow speed. And uh, that's a great compliment that early tour in 63, it ended up changing the Beatles, and it was what put them uh, on the national map in England, which led to them being the big stars that they became. And it also put Roy on the map forever. So they actually helped each other. Roy helped them in the beginning, and over the years, it's Roy who was honored to have toured with the Beatles. And it's just something I'm so proud of. Very few people toured with the Beatles. 
Roy would have been one of the first Americans to see, much less meet, but to see and hear the Beatles, period. No one in America knew who they were, virtually no one. And Roy got up and close and got to see them, the, the full force of the Beatles in those early days, and he knew something was coming. And then he became good friends with George over the course of the tour because they would wake up late. Well, here's the story. One morning, Roy wakes up and he goes out and George is the other person who's waking up late. And they meet each other and the tour bus is gone. The band, the managers, everyone left these two guys behind. I think it's because they were late every day. So there was George and Roy in the limousine driving two hours to the next show that they had. George asked Roy a lot of questions about guitar strings and what kind of strings they used and chords and Sun Records and a lot about Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins was George's favorite guitarist and that early music in 56 from Sun Records made a big impression on George because George got his first guitar in 56. So the first songs that he was listening to were Blue Suede Shoes, Ooby Dooby, and I think Heartbreak Hotel or something, whatever whatever Elvis had in 56, the big hit, or all the big hits. That would follow George all the way through his life. If you haven't seen Carl Perkins and Friends with Eric Clapton and George Harrison, you deserve to see it. It deserves to be seen. Even Ringo showed up for the show, and they ended up doing Honey Don't and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. The Beatles recorded several Carl Perkins tunes, and I always like hearing those. And whenever we go see Ringo and his all-stars, they still do Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. I have so many great Ringo stories. That's why we're. I was talking about Sir Ringo. I hope I got to the end of that. Roy's friendship with George came around full circle all those years later for the Traveling Wilburys, and I'll have to do a podcast on them coming up soon. That'll be a big one. I'll have to do several podcasts. There's a lot to get into with the Wilburys. But it just shows Roy's relationship all the way through. In the 70s, he was good friends with Paul McCartney, and Paul McCartney would come visit us whenever he was in Nashville. One of my earliest memories is a picnic with Paul McCartney and uh, being in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, all those years later, I tried to figure out what we were doing. I said, Mom, when was Paul McCartney in Tennessee? And she said, he was there. We were, we, he was buying publishing. Paul got into publishing. So he came to Nashville and he bought, I know he bought Curly Putnam's publishing. Curly wrote the song Green, Green Grass of Home and a lot of old classics. And Paul would go meet these guys and personally buy their catalog from them. So it was kind of a hobby of him to go around and meet meet people and buy their catalogs. And we saw him a lot as he was doing that. I got to meet Mary McCartney back when I was about two years old, and I think she was three. And I knew the Beatles um, personally before I knew their music. It wasn't until about I was about 11 years old and I was flying by myself uh, overseas and uh, on, a, on a transatlantic flight, and there was uh, nothing to do. So on the, I looked through the book, and on the radio, they had a Beatles you know, kind of channel. And I put that on, and I, when I discovered them, I listened then to the Beatles for seven hours straight. A couple of the songs I actually already knew, but I, I, just, I was too young to know. Then I'm looking through the book reading, and I see the guy from the picnic. <laughs> I see the guy, and I, I just remember him and my dad. And we had uh, several different parties with Paul, so... 
So Roy's friendship changed around from John Lennon to to Paul McCartney to George Harrison in the 80s. And then uh, since Roy's death, Ringo has really adopted us into his family. Very nice. We've spent uh, Christmases and birthdays. And I saw him this year, this last year, 2017. July 6th is his birthday, and we had a great party in L.A. He kissed my baby, Roy, Roy III. So I love Ringo now, too. His wife is Barbara Bach, and they met on a movie that I saw when I was a little caveman. And Ringo was the actor in that, and Barbara Bach. I'm not exactly sure that's where they met, but they, they made that movie together, and that would have been around the right time. Barbara's sister is Marjorie Bach, and she's married to Joe Walsh. My mother, Barbara, was best friends with Marjorie, and she introduced Marjorie and Joe. And I asked Marjorie and Joe to be the godparents to Roy III, and they said yes, and Bo. They're godparents to both my children, Bo Orbison and Roy III. We still see them a lot. And uh, so the families are really intertwined. I know all the kids, and I, I love all the kids. They're all really talented. And uh, Jason plays drums in The Who. And the other kids are directors. And uh, and uh, the Danny Harrison, great friend that I met when we were just kids, playing with train sets and things. And he has a great new album out. Go check that out if you haven't. So that's just some personal info on the Beatles. Uh, they were at Roy's 28th birthday party, back to the tour, they were touring in April of 1963, and there's famous pictures of John and Ringo feeding Roy birthday cake. Also on that tour were Jerry and the Pacemakers, Jerry Marsden, and that little group had a lot of fun, and the last that I checked, Jerry is still doing the same exact tour at the same venues, kind of a historic tour that he does every summer. And uh, I would I would go see all those shows. I've thought about going and following him just to see the places and... Uh, and I, and I may do that someday. Uh, the The reason that the Beatles are still so important is obvious. You know, they are the greatest rock band ever. Uh, just a handful of people, you know, starting with Mozart, moving through maybe maybe it goes Hank Williams, Elvis Presley, the Beatles, Michael Jackson. You know, uh, if you're going to be really brutal and just pick like the best at any particular time. It doesn't leave room for a lot of other greats, but um, and there's so many, and you could say Bob Marley, and you could say Bill Monroe, and you could say Charlie Parker, lots of other names. But if you were going to make a short list, you know, there's the Beatles are right there at the top. And I've tried to think of intelligent things to say, but their music kind of defies comprehension. They they each were genius and. They would filter so many sources through their mind like a prism. So you, you take a song like Pretty Woman and put it through John Lennon's prism genius mind and you get a song like Day Tripper, song in the key, key with a riff in the key of E. It's the same kind of notes shuffled around and he moves them through a kind of a 1-4-5 thing. And, you know, up until now, nobody's even noticed that Day Tripper is kind of a rewrite of Pretty Woman or that a song like Love Me Do is a rewrite of Roy Orbison's Candyman. It has the same chord structure and the same kind of backbeat and the, the stop time chorus and even the phrase Candyman, three syllables, love me do, three syllables. The harmonica 
at the end as it's fading. You know, it's very, very Candyman. But at the same time, the Beatles don't owe anything to anybody because they made it so new. They were masters of melody. In the long run, I think it's the melodies. They wrote great melodies. And uh, Paul McCartney's song Yesterday is right at the top, you know, of all ballads. I guess the two greatest ballads ever written are Roy Orbison's Crying and Paul McCartney's Yesterday. I think my favorite Beatles song is Eight Days a Week. Eight Days a Week is in the key of D. It's 138 beats per minute. And I learned that song for the Beatles Fest. I went upstairs and had a little show at the Apple stage, which is up in the sunshine, overlooking. You can actually see the Statue of Liberty. And there were some great Beatles fans there and some good Orbison fans. And I did an acoustic set by myself. And I I did rockabilly mostly, because that's what I like, is Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry. But I did eight days a week, and the crowd sang along with it, and it was a, a real crowd pleaser. But the reason that I like it is because I don't. I it took me a while to figure out that was my favorite because because it's the kind of song that I sing to myself when I'm on a walk or out at the lake skiing and nobody can hear me and I'm I'm doing something strange. It it's usually that or Yellow Submarine for some reason. Uh, they're just really playful, fun songs. And eight days a week is four chords repeating in kind of an Elvis way. I think they kind of got it from. Love Me Tender, a, a song like Love Me Tender, which has four really nice repeating chords in D and then goes to these B minors and things. That's speculation, but it's something I'm kind of good at. As an, uh, I'm kind of an artistic detective. I hear parts of Eight Days a Week in every other Beatles song, whether it's Strawberry Fields Forever or Baby You Can Drive My Car. The later stuff, everything they ever did, even individually, I can hear a little bit of Eight Days a Week. So for me, eight days a week is a is a fingerprint for the Beatles. It's uh, it's just my personal choice, but but and it's a hard one to when you play the game. What's your favorite Beatles song? Uh, so eight days a week is my favorite Beatles song. Yesterday is my favorite ballad by them, and my favorite live song is Twist and Shout. The way that their voice scratches and just something about it, Twist and Shout. It just gets people dancing. So it's a great, great live song. And the version that I do is actually the song that it came from, which is uh, Richie Valens' La Bamba. Um, let me think. I, th- I think Twist and Shout was written in 1961, and La Bamba by Richie Valens was recorded in 1957. So someone just rewrote it, and then the Beatles claimed it. And uh, and it's the Beatles version that I like so well. I can always listen to that one. For the Beatles Fest, I wanted to give them some information that they didn't know. Uh, there's so much about the Beatles that you hear the same stories over and over again. So I went through my memories and I thought, okay, what can I tell them about? What are some amazing things? And there's too many. Some are private, so I can't tell them for different reasons. But, you know, my mom, Barbara Orbison, she was great friends with Olivia Harrison. And one of the stories that I came up with that I hadn't told before was after George Harrison passed away, I was with my mother at Friars Park in Henley-on-Thames, and they were going for a walk. Olivia said, let's go for a walk through the gardens. I've renovated the whole thing. And I only had my nicest shoes on. 
So I said, I, and it was raining a little bit. It was a little bit muddy. I just said, I don't have walking shoes. She, Olivia said, we've got lots of shoes. Just pick one of the pairs there. And I looked down and there was a long row with a lot of shoes, you know, 50 pairs of shoes. I saw one straight away on the top that kind of looked like my size. And I could see it was exactly my size. So I grabbed those and I started to put them on. And Olivia said, those were George's favorite shoes. And I instantly was a little nervous and I started to put the shoes back. And she said, no, no, he would want you to wear them. And I couldn't even look her in the face because I nearly started crying, but I started to put on the shoes and I'm tying these George's shoes. And uh, it was just such a little microcosm of how strong these guys were. You know, John Lennon and George and Paul and Ringo, each one of them came up with these great philosophical, in addition to everything else they did in their life, they, they hit on some eternal truths that I still live and that I still give to friends as, as advice. Things like give peace a chance and all we're saying, <laughs> and, and all you need is love and peace and love. I, I, I love them all the more because in the height of their power, they chose to go this giving way and they were always religious and spiritual and uh, and and with a lot of grace and that I saw in Olivia and the people around them and it's just further testament to the genius of the Beatles so there I am walking through the gardens that George famously worked in these gardens and planted things and uh, I was walking in the shoes looking at the trees and the colors and I experienced them for him I thought uh, I owed him that. So I was looking with, with a different set of eyes and just experiencing the things specifically, the rocks and the path and, and the, the trees and the colors, and I was trying to experience them for him. And at the Beatles Fest, I recognized what a great honor it is that I'm one of the few people in the world that has walked a mile in George Harrison's shoes. And I thank him for that, and I thank Olivia, and, uh, and Danny is a fantastic chip off the old block, my dad would have called him, and it's really true. People make a lot of that, that he sounds and looks like George, but he's got the spirit, and he, he's the right hand of George Harrison, so uh, please check out his music. And I have some other little facts that I like to tell whenever I get a chance to talk about George. George famously lost a plagiarism suit with the song My Sweet Lord. The, the, the owners of the song She's So Fine came after him and George lost that lawsuit and the judge said although it wasn't conscious that there was enough uh, resemblance there that the copyright would go to she's so fine a lot of people know that story it's almost a cliche in the music business but what people don't know is how George handled it and George handled this by buying the copyright to she's so fine and that just I didn't find that out until a couple of weeks ago and uh, now I tell everyone who cares to listen, because I just think that's so funny. You know, it's kind of a, George had the last laugh, and just how clever he was, and, and how they handle big things like this, like lawsuits, and I'm not sure, but I guess the Beatles sued each other, and still went to each other's birthday parties. And uh, they have such big business that this one I just love, that George bought it. So every time you hear My Sweet Lord, the money goes to She's So Fine, which goes to George Harrison. So he gets paid for both songs, and uh, that was a, probably a really intelligent, smart purchase for him. 
and is also one of my favorite songs. When you talk about the Beatles solo careers, you've got, you know, My Sweet Lord is, 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 it's a religious song. It's almost spiritual. It goes up there with Amazing Grace and Hank Williams, I Saw the Light, and uh, all the great spiritual songs. I still play that one myself when I'm a little bit down or just I find myself playing it when I don't even know what I'm doing. I just hit that F sharp minor. Boom, 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 boom. And, uh, and I instantly feel like I'm on a different plane. Same thing with Give Peace a Chance and All You Need Is Love. Those songs, uh, they transcend even the Beatles as, as being very special. Uh, the solo careers, they also, you know, Paul McCartney had a great solo career. Ringo, I still go see him live every t- chance I get. And John Lennon on his rock and roll album, he did a, a lot of oldies. On there, I like Stand By Me a lot. His version was great. But he tried to do the song Only the Lonely. And only I wish he had chosen one of the other songs because he, he would have done it. But he chose Only the Lonely, and he strums it a little while, and then he says, how did Orbison do it? Uh, and they just couldn't get it together. And it turns out Only the Lonely is one of the the hardest songs to play. It's very tricky to play and sing, and it has a lot of left turns. sounds so simple that you think it's just this little repeating four-bar thing, but it's it's got a lot of tricks. So uh, it's a song that I would never try to do live, and I'm not sure how Roy did it all the time live. And John Lennon saw how hard it is. It's not one you can just do real easy. But I, I would have liked to have heard the finished product. I heard him do a little bit of it, you know. Uh, that's out there on the bootlegs and things like that. There's lots more to talk about, and that was just off the top of my head. But I like to get technical about the Beatles, and I like to get emotional about the Beatles. I, I love them so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, there's no way to thank them for what they've done for me personally in my life. Some of my greatest stories revolve around the Beatles. Um, Maybe we get to another one sometime, or I do individual podcasts. I know I've got to do the Traveling Wilburys pretty soon. And be sure to check me out on social media, RoyOrbisonJr.com, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And I'll catch you next time for another fun podcast, Roy Orbison Jr.'s Rock and Roll Circus. Thank you very much. Peace and love.